All right. Well, welcome to the first podcast episode uh, here at the OC. Um, I just noticed that the last, uh, I think the last, um, what am I trying to say? The last upload was uh, quite a while ago on this particular website, but I'm trying a new, uh, a new program here. It's uh, basically, it's a podcast uh, program called Anchor. And uh, we're going to utilize it with the OC being our, you know, chief uh platform or website um, and with the podcast allowing us to to do some uh, messages and also uh, what I'm uh, some other programs so this particular one is is an ongoing series that I've been doing um, on the basically on the Christian calendar um, involving you know the the two primary holidays that being uh, or those being I should say um, the uh, Advent season, Advent and Christmas that uh, we're just kind of passing through, and then um, the Lenten season. I didn't do much this uh, this Advent season. I feel yeah, I kind of got caught in a little bit of a strange backwash of you know just scheduling and everything, and a bit of a malaise just from two years of absolute you know uh, what do they call it? Uh, whatever the last two years shit show I think is the term. Um, but in any event, um, I did prepare this message a couple weeks ago, and um, and I think it's a good jumping off point, uh, even though I, I can't place it exactly in terms of uh, in terms of our uh, liturgical calendar, as it were. So I'm just going for it. All right. This particular um, let me make sure I got everything working here still. Um, yeah, here we go. All right. There's this. And I'm looking for one other program here. There it is. Yep. So this, the title of today's podcast is called And Faith Does Not Put Us to Shame. It's a little um, segment out of the book of Romans where Paul is, I believe it's chapter five of Romans. And um, in fact, I should reference it, shouldn't I? Uh, Where he's talking to the church at Rome. Talking to the Christians there at Rome, and he says these. He says he offers these words about hope. Uh, here it is. He says um, concerning hope, or is the OC here? There it is. And I'll go to the ESV. We'll use that translation for this one. Um, here we go. Um, Romans chapter five. All right. Turn with me there if you if you got a Bible. If not, I'll just read it. Um, Romans 5 reads thusly, uh, Romans, here we go, 5, 5, 5. He says, um, therefore, he says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So there's that. There's the introduction of hope there. We rejoice in hope. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So I want to talk about this concept of faith and specifically, um, I'm sorry, not of faith, of hope, (laughs) sorry, 
I want to talk about hope and uh, and getting at the heart of this. Why is it that Paul writes, hope does not put us to shame? I think it's because anytime you risk to hope, as the saying goes, you risk being disappointed. And so uh, suffice to say, there's been a lot of disappointment. And uh, if, you've, if you've lived beyond the age of maybe two years old, uh, you've experienced disappointment. In fact, Paul talks about it this way, you know, as far as some of the things that maybe we have hoped in or had, or maybe uh, we've, we've hoped in things that have disappointed us because, um, well, let's just say we, we didn't gamble correctly. We, we made some bad, bad investments or we just didn't know or circumstances just turned against us and for no, for no, uh, what do you call it? Shortcomings of our own. It's just been a matter of Oh, the difficulties of life. Okay. But uh, I will say this: some of the difficulties that we've experienced and that um, that I've shared with uh, the rest of my fellow occasional congregants here is that the difficulties surrounding God himself uh, or surrounding our experience with the church or with the faith. And, uh, and those are the things that obviously leave, uh, that are hardest to deal with, right? Those are the things where those are the disappointments that seem to cut the deepest. Um, I think as Lewis said, he says, you know, go to God when you have no real need of him and you can, he'll welcome you in and you can, you know, jump on his lap and no, uh, there's just nothing but, uh, you know, peace and joy and all this. He says, but go to him in your time of need. It's the sound of closing doors and bolting locks. And he's talking about uh, what we're going to get into here. He's talking about where uh, I think John Donne uh, referred to as the dark night of the soul, or as the book of Job portrays as one who suffers and, and suffers um, feeling, feeling that, that, the, that heaven is turned against you or, and that there's a certain injustice to life. Well, suffice to say, those things are worth, well, we must uh, face these issues. But some of the things that I have that have caused me difficulty and, and heartache, some of the things that have be, become, as it were, a, a matter of bad investments or even worse, maybe uh, a fool's errand that I've been on countless times. Uh, if I could put it this way, well, again, to quote Paul, he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, let me just put it to you starkly uh, as we dive into this question of the, where, where, how suffering and hope and, and all the, how, how does that even, how do we make sense of, of hope when, uh, when Paul wants to somehow connect it to suffering? Those two things seem diametrically opposed to each other. Well, the one thing that has, has caused me, uh, let's just say, has impeded my path and has, has kind of dulled my vision, and I believe has kept me in a bit of a childish uh, position, a, a rather infantile view of the faith, has been what I will refer to as formula faith. Formula faith, uh, or, or as I would like to say, another stark statement I have here in my notes is, the God, small g, of my childhood is dead. That is the God of these formulas that I was, uh, that I tried to carry out, that I was taught that if you do A, 
uh, plus B, you'll always get C. And if you don't get C, well, go back to the formula and fix it. Get it right. Because if you pray this way, if you, if you uh, commit yourself to God in this manner, then there will be a certain outcome that is as certain as, well, as certain, unless you have a, a defective vending machine, it's put the, put the quarters in and get the goodie out. Put the quarters in the jukebox, as my old friend Professor Wes Pinkham used to say. You put the heavenly quarters in the heavenly jukebox and out comes the heavenly music. No heavenly quarters, no heavenly music. Formula faith. You've seen the obscenities of it, of course, with the televangelists and the way that they go on to say that it's within your power to proclaim this and declare that, the health and wealth or the gospel, what is it, the prosperity gospel. Though I wasn't, a, I wasn't, I wouldn't say that the church or, or my uh, church tradition um, was fully immersed in that. We were steeped in it enough that it is to this day a point of real grief and pain to me. There's another, uh, I would just would say, a bad investment that I made. There was the formula faith, and then there was my desire to belong. Now, that's just an instinct. You say, Chris, don't be so hard on yourself. We all need a place to live. We need people to care for us and, and people to care for. Yes, but I'm talking about the belonging as consensus. And if you look up the definition, and the, the word consensus means a general agreement on things. You see, to belong to each other in Jesus Christ is not a general agreement. It's not the kind we make with society where we say, hey, there's a grid of basically these civil laws and we'll agree to, for the most part, you know, be fair with each other and, and, and you know, not litter in each other's yard or steal each other's things. There'll be a general agreement and we'll share this, we'll share the infrastructure and we'll share utilities. That's a general agreement. And as we've seen, depending on what part of history or what uh, part of the country or what you know part of the world you want to uh, look at at any given time in history, those general agreements are oftentimes, well, they're, they can be more fragile than we ever imagined. It's because they're general. They're made between flawed and, and, fail, flawed and, and uh, um, fallible human beings. I do not believe that, uh, that the church is a consensus. Those who gather with a general agreement that we're generally good people and that we generally have these kind of viewpoints and that we generally want this kind of future for ourselves and our children. No, I don't believe that anymore. I believe as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says of the church, that the church is nothing more than this, nothing more and not, nothing certainly less than this. Those who belong to each other in and through Jesus Christ. So you could say that compared to the church and faith experience of my childhood, I'm in the market for a new God and a new church. And so a couple of years ago, I started with the question put to, um, well, put to us through the, uh, what would you call it, through the, the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which was uh, penned in a, a Nazi prison while he was being held uh, under guard for being uh, part of the conspiracy plot, of course, to overthrow the the uh, the regime called the Nazis and Adolf Hitler. And while he was in prison, he wrote these words. He says, I'm beginning to wonder just exactly who is Christ for us today? Who is he for us today? Things have changed, he said. The world is upside down. 
the law is inside out. I've read recently, actually I heard on another podcast that, um, in fact, there was a, there's a, a gentleman I follow. He's a philosopher and a, and a, um, uh, what is he? he he's a philosopher and a, and a psychotherapist. I'm sorry, he's an academic and, a, as a, and he's a psychotherapist. And he was talking uh, with a, a group on his podcast of other, I guess you could say other academics or other practitioners, some of them from the church, some of them from academia. And they were talking about what is meaning and, and are there any clues that, that kind of correspond between the natural world and, and the invisible or the world of metaphysics, the world of God, the, the realm of God? pointers to uh, the wisdom beyond uh, mere matter. And so, in other words, this one, uh, I, can't, I think it was um, Rosaria uh, Butterfield, she was speaking and she, I just remember the, the quote that a friend of mine and Johannes and I share quite a bit just because it was, it's a very piercing uh, concept. And this is similar, uh, of a similar content to what they were sharing on Peterson's podcast. And that is this, that meaning precedes consciousness. We all think that being, you know, everything's so subjective. Everything starts with us and our ability to understand it or not. And outside of it, there's no order or there's no meaning to the universe. Yes, it is brutal and it is, most of it is extremely cold. And as uh, if you look out in, in creation or in nature, you'll see as, as one, uh, one uh, what was it? Somebody once put it, uh, it is red. The nature is red in tooth and claw. Yes, it's true. But there is so much meaning embedded, so much, so much detail in terms of the way systems and ecosystems, both in terms of the way that the animal kingdom works and the, in its ecosystem between, you know, uh, all, the, all the relationships between weather patterns and geological uh, phenomenon. And then you get down to the microbiology, meaning there is meaning that precedes our ability to even perceive it. It precedes our consciousness of it. This is no, that, that was out of fashion for a while among the kind of, not just atheists, but kind of Christian agnostics, the academics, even the theologians who became embarrassed about the idea of saying God in a secular age, that there's evidence and it's coming back. And it's not this kind of cheap, evidence demands a verdict as if God's going to win everyone over through sheer argument. No, but it's for those who contemplate these things and recognize that there is all kinds of signposts, or as one one, uh, philosopher put it, there is all kinds of signs that there is indeed a watchmaker that corresponds with this watch that we're looking at. That's not really the point of today's podcast. It's really about run, uh, trying to understand that while we, while we will reflect on these questions of meaning, that that's not that those questions are not usually solved in some kind of a proof or even in terms of the best argument. So when I hear heard Peterson say recently he cannot that he cannot believe in though he believes how does he put it he says he lives as though he lives as though there were a God he says I can't make the next step into the concrete. Um, deposit of faith in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, for two reasons. One, there's not enough evidence as seen in the lives of his followers, not enough evidence of the character and the behavior that should reflect the God that they worship. 
Secondly, he said, there's too much suffering and injustice in the world. Notably, he says, in my own life. And I understand that and I appreciate his, his honesty and his vulnerability. I sincerely appreciate that kind of transparency rather than just railing against the arguments all day long. So the name of this podcast is Christ and the Real World. We want to be able to have conversations about faith in the midst of doubt, looking for having a conversation about faith, recognizing the all too human and all too regularly, I guess, all too mundane conditions of everyday life. We're not trying to be God's press secretaries here. We're not trying to be more spiritual than the angels. We're trying to come back down to what's called a down-to-earth faith. And I don't mean pragmatic. I mean down-to-earth where God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he descends. He condescends. He comes all the way down. As the writer of the Philippians, book of Philippians says, he comes lower than you could imagine. He not only comes down to dwell among us, but he takes the form of a servant. Not just a servant, he becomes a criminal. And, and a criminal that's literally tortured and punished in the most inhumane way. So yes, this God comes down. We're not building our stairways to heaven. We're not climbing ladders into trying to make it into the ethereal uh, realm of where God abides. No, God has come down. And he has come down in the form of the suffering servant, which means that he is transforming life, but he is not transforming it without suffering. That's why Paul writes, and hope does not put us to shame. He says, because we rejoice, not only that, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, as we just read. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love, he writes in that same chapter, Romans chapter 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So if you want to get a little bit more uh, of that kind of uh, message, it's a very interesting one. I'm going to probe it in terms of the relationship of this suffering to the story of the Christ. But first, we want to, I want to look at uh, one of the often overlooked books in the Bible. Uh, it's the book of Job. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the oldest book in the Bible is not uh, Genesis. It's not even Exodus. It's the book of Job. And the book of Job begins with these words. I'm just going to read the introduction. Here we go. Job, there we are. Job chapter 1 reads, There was a man in the land of Uz, Uz, Uz. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That's how the story begins. It's a long story. It's told in this very, it's, it's part of what's called the wisdom literature. It's told in a very, it's kind of like a drama of sorts. Turns out that the, it's, it's not just with the, uh, the, the Israelites who, who, are, who basically are, were the stewards of this tradition, but it's, you see it throughout all traditions, throughout all times, throughout all culture. It's the question of what's called a theodicy, the question of why do we suffer if there is a God? Well, 
I want to just make a, a quick uh, reference to the fact that um, to this to this emphasis in Scripture. Not only does Job want to address that question, as I've already mentioned, and as we're just any, uh, entering, no, let's, sorry, reverse that. <laughs> as we are now exiting the season of Advent and Christmas, Christmas is Christ Mass. Christ has taken form. He's among us. And he has come as a suffering servant. But the role of prophecy is key. Prophecy just means to speak forth. It's not always a prediction of things, though it does have a foreshadowing or a foretelling about things. But it's not like a fortune teller that's just talking about this particular detail or that. It's a forthtelling, a speaking forth of God's heart and mind, what is on his heart and mind concerning this planet, concerning the human race. And as I read from 1 Peter 1.10, quote, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This speaking forth, this, as I mentioned last year, this tradition of the lore, of the hope that God would indeed intervene and he would in, intervene into history in a, such a profound way that he would not simply modify or or what would you call it uh, redirect history but that he would overhaul it that he would reformat it without destroying it that he would enter into the space-time continuum in a particular form in the form of a human being now job is a book about god and it's a book about suffering it's a story of a man who virtually sued god and today when everyone's talking about you know, injustices, societal injustices, systemic injustices. Job, it is uh, recounted here, counted in the in the in the story of of his name that goes by his name, Job. Job suffered, and Job was a man of faith. In fact, we just read that in the land of Uz, this man Job was quote blameless and upright. He's described as one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job was a man of faith. Don't let anyone tell you he was not. Job was given a personal audience with the God of the universe because he persisted in having that audience. He wanted to appeal to the highest court in heaven. But it took him a long time because he was surrounded by people, by what were called his counselors or friends, and they tried to talk him out of it. In Job... Here's just an example. When Job is describing, he, like, if you're not familiar with Job, he is, he is, as we would say, afflicted, is, is putting it lightly. He was devastated. His health was taken from him. His children were taken from him. His home, his livelihood, it was all dead. He, it was destroyed, ripped away from him through one tragedy after another. 
And when he begins to build his case, saying, God, this is not fair, this is unjust, he was making his case. He said this, he said, speaking of God, he said, speaking of God, he said, for he is not a human being like I am, that I might answer him, that we might come together in judgment, nor is there an arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both on us both, who could take uh, who could take his rod away from me so that his terror would not make me afraid. If it were, then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. He's desperate. And when you go to court, you're look, you need a lawyer, you need an advocate. And, and Job is, is lamenting the fact that though he's, he is suffering and he, he feels that his suffering is unjust. He says, oh, if there was an arbiter between us, somebody to stand between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Again, the writer of Hebrew says this, speaking of those in who, he speaks of those who have faith. And he gives a long record of people throughout the, the annals of time and history, throughout the history of Israel, who demonstrated that faith in the way that they lived their lives. And this is the definition or one of the defining traits, speaking of those who quote unquote have faith, by the way, one of the most misunderstood, abused and misused terms, and I think in the human vocabulary, English vocabulary for sure, that and the word love. Speaking of the people of faith or what one of the features of uh, that make up a person of faith, writer of Hebrew says this, for he, that is the person of faith, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a, a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So Job has been maligned. I, he's probably one of the most maligned people in the church or in the, in the halls of faith. He's constantly maligned by <clears throat> people who completely, in my opinion, well, not so humble opinion, I've looked a good deal at this book, and they take him to task as if he's done something wrong. And yet we read, again, I'll read it again, Job chapter one. He was an, the man uh, in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright. He feared God and turned away from evil. And to hear people speak of him as though he needed God to punish him because, well, because he had done wrong or because he was evil. That's what this book is about. <clears throat> Excuse me. The issue is not about God's justice or ultimately. Turns out it's about his wisdom. That's about 30 chapters later. But he has to go through this incredible, just this soul-crushing crucible, this series of landmines. First, he goes through the suffering itself. Then he has to navigate this series of landmines just to make his case. And he doesn't get much support, not even from, well, not even from today's Christians that I know. Because here is here he speaks as a prophet. At first he says, oh, if there was somebody to stand between us, somebody who would mediate between us. And then by the time you get to chapter 19, he says this, as for me, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives and that as the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God whom I will see for myself and whom my own eyes will behold and not another. You see, 
another definition coming or another description of a person of faith from that same from that same um, book the author of, of uh, the book of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 4:11 faith he writes is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen so when job says i know my redeemer lives and i will see god it turns out that before the before the his his trials in the book of job are over he does in fact see god and i told you it's a long book and i said 30 chapters make that 40 some odd i think it's almost 50. job 42 chapter 42 reads then job answered the lord i know that you can do all things no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked of me, who is this who darkens counsel without knowledge? Yes, I have declared without understanding things too wonderful for me to know. <clears throat> Excuse me. You said, pay attention and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye has seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. That is not the man who, that is not a man who lacks faith. That is a man who has persisted and who God has seen fit to give him audience with the judge of heaven, of the heaven, uh, of the most high God. He gave him the audience in his holiest of counsels. And he justified Job. He, he caused him to stand. And of all his, all of Job's, quote, counselors who gave him such a hard time, who said, no, no, you've clearly done something wrong. And it's the old theodicy that only people who do wrong things suffer. It's not true. The book of Job makes it clear it's not true. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job,